1: Welcome and good day, wherever you are. I'm Richard Knox, your moderator for today. I report on health and science and write for Common Health, which is the health blog of WBUR NPR's affiliate here in Boston. Today's hour long discussion is a collaboration uh, between the forum at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Huffington Post. They're live streaming and archiving the event on their respective websites. We'll be discussing an especially important topic, driving while drowsy, with an exceptional group of panelists. On my immediate right is the redoubtable Arianna Huffington, Editor-in-Chief of the Huffington Post. Next to her is my old friend Charles Zeisler, a global leader in the science of sleep. He's chief of the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and the Frank Baldino Professor of Sleep Medicine and Director of the Division of Sleep Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Jay Winston, another old friend, is the Frank Stanton Director of the Center for Health Communication here at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where he's also Associate Dean for Health Communication. Finally, joining us remotely is Mark Rosekind, Administrator of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, which recently launched the federal government's first ever plan to protect us all from drowsy driving. And this is a matter that really does concern us all. So we invite you in our studio audience and those watching everywhere to formulate your questions to the panel. Online viewers should email them to forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat happening on the forum uh, beginning now. I'd be surprised if there's anybody in our audience today who hasn't at one time or another had to struggle to keep his or her eyes open behind the wheel. Some of you may have had that surge of adrenaline when you suddenly realize you'd begun to drift off at 60 or 70 miles an hour. Accidents caused by drowsy drivers happen every day, but it's hard to know the exact numbers. The National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration says there were more than 72,000 police-reported accidents involving dr- drowsy drivers between 2009 and 2013. That's undoubtedly an underestimate. The role of drowsiness in accidents is not always knowable, much less reportable. After all, there's no blood alcohol test for drowsiness. And a sleepy driver is even harder for a police officer to spot than one distracted by a smartphone. Drivers themselves often don't realize they're nodding nodding off before an accident happens. So first, we're going to look at the likely scope of this problem. Then we'll explore what might be done about it. To start, I'd like to turn to Arianna Huffington. We're delighted you could join us today. Thank you. If you don't know already, Arianna has written a new book called The Sleep Revolution, Transforming Your Life One Night at a Time. It covers a broad waterfront way beyond the scope of today's discussion. But as part of her campaign, Arianna is leading an effort to get people to pledge not to drive when they're sleep deprived and less than alert. Let's take a look first at a public service announcement that we took from the Huffington Post's campaign. I was driving back
2: from Columbia, South Carolina. I fell asleep at the wheel for three to five seconds. Within those three to five seconds, my whole entire life changed. My friend just for a minute, nodded off. The car rolled one and a half times and I was thrown out the side window and hit my head. I feel like I lost 10 years of my life. That macho mentality. You know, we just say, I'm almost home but if I was to talk to my 19-year-old self, I would say that you're not invincible. My friends and I made a decision to drive when we shouldn't be driving. You do not understand how fast it happens.
3: My life changed in a blink of an eye, literally.
2: Caffeine is not gonna keep you awake. Your friends might not keep you awake. Music might not keep you awake. So please, please, if you are sleepy, pull over find somewhere to sleep, don't get in the car. You might die, you might kill somebody else, and I'm telling you that it is not a gamble that's worth it.
1: Ariana, tell us more about why this subject is so important to you, and why you decided to launch this effort to raise awareness about drowsy driving.
4: So, as the mother of, uh, of two daughters, um like any parent, I'm acutely aware of just what you described because it's happened to me. I have gotten behind the wheel and drifted off. Uh, I, I was lucky, no tragedy ensued, but you don't know what uh, time the tragedy will be the result. And that's why we chose to tell the stories of Adam and Amy to show in a more emotional way how quickly your life and the lives of others on the road can be changed. So as part of my whole campaign um, to help people understand that we have devalued sleep and um, have paid a very heavy price, not just in the recent years, but really since the Industrial Revolution. Um, we chose to focus on this because it has such catastrophic results on uh, people's lives and the lives of, of those they may encounter on the road. And uh, so we launched um, a campaign with change.org where people can go and sign a pledge and not to drive while tired and also not to let friends drive while, while tired. And you know, drowsy is almost like a word which is too soft. And um, um, we talked a lot with Jay about do we change the word? It sounds like almost cute, Uh, when in fact it encompasses a variety of of states of uh, of mind and being. You know, from being completely exhausted, and thinking that you can have a cup of coffee or an energy drink and you'll power through. Uh, to feeling a little tired or bored on the road, and therefore you drift off. But I really believe that we need to put this campaign in the larger context of uh, how our culture perceives sleep, because I don't believe we're going to win um, if people don't reevaluate sleep. And that's why I'm so happy Charles is here, because the latest science on sleep and the impact of sleep deprivation is so amazing, so conclusive, um, that what, what is missing from our culture is awareness of that science and um, a deep understanding that cultures often believe the wrong thing. And go to the, an ad for, for cigarettes By doctors in the 1950s, just to remind you how there was a time in the not too distant past when smoking was considered okay. So, sleep deprivation is the new smoking. Mm -hmm. And we need that cultural shift where people realize it is not optional, it is not negotiable, and contrary to a collective delusion. that sleep deprivation is going to make us more productive, that people who really want to get things done, to be successful, to change the world, need to sacrifice sleep. The opposite is the truth, that adequate sleep is actually a performance enhancement tool and every aspect of our lives, from our health to our productivity to our mental health and happiness is improved. So the drowsy driving campaign for me needs to be embedded in a large cultural campaign about the importance of sleep if it is going to be a successful campaign.
1: But isn't this an uphill battle? The other morning I was listening to Morning Edition, and uh, David Green was interviewing Senator John Tester, the Democratic senator from Montana. <laughs> and he, was, uh, he said that he'd only had a couple of hours of sleep the night before, and he said, that's plenty. And then he added, sleep is totally overrated. And I, I couldn't tell whether he was uh, he was joking or not. But doesn't that say a lot either way about our, oh, our absolutely, culture? Oh, absolutely,
4: absolutely. How do you change that? Especially politicians. They 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 really uh, tend to brag constantly, including in fundraising letters. Ted Cruz, two weeks before he suspended his campaign, sent a fundraising letter out in which he said, "I have sacrificed my sleep and my health." For the public. And I thought to myself, why would we want an exhausted sick leader? (laughs) Like, (laughs) why why is this in our interest? Uh, But that's the kind of uh, cultural ethos that we need to change. And, you know, if you look at the state of our politics, it's not exactly something that we aspire to. And, uh, in fact, if you look at the examples of sleep deprivation, according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, a lot of them. Are exemplified um, among our modern political leaders who are bragging about how little sleep they get. So, but that's only one aspect. And the good news is that while we have a lot of examples of what you described—you know, bragging about sleep deprivation, congratulating employees for working 24/7—which Charles will confirm—is the cognitive equivalent of coming to work drunk. And you go and tell somebody, hey, Charles, great. You just had five shots, and you are now at work. Good for you. But <laughs> it's the same thing. And if you read the science, and um, I have 50 pages of scientific and e- notes. I'm not a sleep scientist, but I've talked to hundreds of them to get their wisdom and get the data. You'll see that we are operating under a completely flawed premises. And so it's important to note that things are changing. And if I can mention just a couple of very unexpected positive examples of the change. Uh, McKinsey, the McKinsey Consulting Group, which is in many ways seen as the boiler room of sleep deprivation, just put out (laughs) a report which was extracted in the Harvard Business Review, Um, and the title is uh, the proven link between effective leadership and sleep. And they walk us through what happens to the prefrontal cortex, where executive functioning uh, is housed, when uh, you're sleep deprived. And I think it's an incredible, really cultural moment when um, McKinsey has a sleep specialist on staff, not to help consultants stay awake, but to help them sleep. And one Mm -hmm. more thing quickly, which is Aetna, the third largest health insurance company, um, has just introduced a program for all its employees from the top, from Mark Bertolini, the CEO, uh, has given the employees Fitbits to track their sleep. Mm -hmm. And those who are tracking seven hours or more a night get $25. Um, wow. A night. Now, beyond the financial incentive is the cultural incentive. Here is the CEO of the company saying that it's in the interest of Aetna, it's in the interest of our bottom line, it reduces our healthcare costs, it improves our productivity. This, as, as Jay will confirm, are huge cultural moments, and mm-hmm. so we feel that um, we, we have a lot of the wind on our back for a successful campaign against drowsy driving.
1: Arianna, you've beautifully set up our next panelist. Uh, Chuck Zeisler, uh, over the years, has documented the effects of sleep deprivation on behavior and performance among shift workers and doctors and truck drivers and others. Today, we're we're talking about how we're all at risk while driving, while fatigued. and so i'd like to ask chuck to walk us through what happens to the sleep deprived brain when it's tasked with a complex behavior like piloting a 2-ton machine going 60 miles an hour
2: well dick thank you very much it's 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 uh, amazing that driving is a such a routine highly overlearned task that the sleep deprived brain can actually seize control when sleep pressure is high enough and involuntarily make the transition from wakefulness to sleep. And so it's, it's particularly concerning that 56 million Americans a month admit that they drive when they haven't gotten enough sleep and they are exhausted. Eight million of them lose the struggle to stay awake and actually admit to falling asleep at the wheel every month. Uh, causing more than a million crashes every year, 50,000 debilitating injuries, such as the one that uh, is is in the uh, public service announcement announcement from the Huffington Post, and 6,400 deaths. Uh, That's two 9-11s every year relating to sleep-deficient driving. Uh, and notice I use the word sleep deficient because it's not just drowsy. In fact, many sleep deficient drivers, if they have sleep apnea that has caused cardiovascular consequences, they have so much adrenaline on board that they may not even perceive themselves as being drowsy. But when an individual, and and we just finally got a a consensus group, the first consensus panel of experts uh, to agree that if an individual has had less than two hours of sleep, in the previous 24 hours, that that's the equivalent uh, of being negligent and should be added to the statutes, uh, it's just like drunk driving. So, uh, but there are th- there are three groups that are particularly vulnerable. You know, young people think that because they're young, they're fit, they can do anything. Uh, that they would be the most resilient in the face of sleep deprivation. But actually, young people are the most vulnerable. Uh, they cause um, they cause m- more than half of fatigue-related accidents are in people under 25 years of age.
1: Why do you think that's the case?
2: Well, we, we've done laboratory studies. Because people said, well, at first, they, well, they're out carousing. No wonder they're falling asleep at the wheel. But it's not, that's not the reason. There's actually a biological reason. So as we get older, uh, we lose cells in the sleep switch in the brain, in the hypothalamus, that help us make the transition from wakefulness to sleep. That's why so many older people have to take sleeping pills to sleep at night. But the young brain will actually be more likely to seize control. So when we, take, when we, keep, young and, when we keep an 18-year-old awake all night and compare that to keeping a 70-year-old awake all night, the 18-year-old will have 10 times as many involuntary lapses of attention mm-hmm. than the older person. So young people are more vulnerable, not less, uh, to the effects of sleep deprivation. The second group that is particularly vulnerable are uh, night shift workers. So we did a study with Liberty Mutual in which we took actual night shift workers and had them uh, drive on the Liberty Mutual test track uh, at the time that they would be commuting home. And 37 percent of them, even though we were recording their EEG, there was another driver in the car with a set of emergency brakes and so on, and so there were people in the car. But nonetheless, 37% of them had a near-crash event in which emergency braking maneuvers had to be initiated. And that was just one two-hour drive. Imagine the entire year of commuting. And so night shift workers are particularly vulnerable. And the third group that is particularly vulnerable are people with sleep disorders, particularly sleep apnea. One out of three men and one out of six women have sleep apnea, and yet 85% are undiagnosed and untreated. And it more than doubles the risk of crashes. In fact, truck drivers, many of whom are driving at night, when you combine sleep apnea with night driving, it it makes the risk of crashes much greater. We've just published a study this month showing that uh, truck drivers with sleep apnea who are not compliant with treatment have a 400% increased risk of serious preventable truck crashes. And this is a problem that needs to be addressed.
1: I think I'm going to stop driving altogether. But (laughs) I wanted to ask about something that, and I'm not sure this is in your your research portfolio, but um, I've noticed a drop in alertness and even powerful drowsiness when I haven't been sleep deprived. Uh, it's monotony. It's maybe it's the middle of the afternoon. Maybe that's I don't. What can we say about that? That kind of lapse of attention.
2: Well, there are two particular times of day at which we are most vulnerable. One is in the middle of the afternoon, before the internal clock in the brain has given us a second wind to help us stay awake uh, in the evening. Uh, And that many cultures have a siesta. We have, instead of a siesta, a coffee break. The British have a tea time. So there is that time of vulnerability. Uh, And most, actually, uh, uh, sleep-deficient driving incidents happen during the daytime, because there are so many more drivers Mm -hmm. on the road. It used to be thought that they only happened at night, Uh, but that's because people weren't looking, Uh, and when they outfit uh, cars with uh, five different cameras, looking at the driver, looking at the at the road ahead, and so on. They find that uh, 22% of all crash and near crash incidents are related to people uh, zoning out, and most of them are happening during the daytime, where yeah. they're nodding off and falling asleep.
1: I'm not the only one, then. You're <laughs> not the only one. Next, I'd like to turn to Dr. Mark Rosekind, as it turns out, he's one of the world's leading experts on human fatigue. He's directed sleep research at Stanford, led the Fatigue Countermeasures Program at NASA, and founded a consulting firm called Alertness Solutions. So he's now ideally positioned to lead NHTSA's new drowsy driving initiative. Mark, tell us how your agency views this problem.
3: Well, let's start with driving impaired is life threatening. And what we've done at NHTSA is to basically expand our definition of impaired driving. So it's not just drunk distracted, but there's a fourth D now, drowsy driving. And I'm always pointing out not everybody's taking a drink, not everybody's taking some drugs, not everybody's on their cell phone. Absolutely everybody needs sufficient sleep so they are wide awake and alert every time they drive. And so our focus has been, one, education. That's why these kinds of activities are so critical. You've already been talking with Ariana. This is a cultural change that has to take place. Without that revolution, We will be learning these lessons for decades into the future. So we need to change our culture. It can't be okay to lose sleep because it can be life-threatening. At NHTSA, the initiative is focused on education. We gotta change the culture. It's focused on strategies. What are people gonna be able to do about it? Research, what else do we need to know? But also policies that might be put in place either for our entire country, our society, or for individual groups that would help this along as well. So one of the things I highlight, you know, getting enough sleep is such a great benefit. Health, performance, but especially safety. In this realm, losing sleep is life-threatening. And that's why drowsy driving is such a critical public health issue that everybody should be concerned about. Because if it's not you, it's somebody around you that could be dangerous on the road.
1: You know, we mentioned earlier that there's no uh, blood alcohol level kind of test. For, uh, for drowsy driving. How, how do you think you can measure such an elusive thing?
3: Well, that's the big challenge. I'll just say in two ways. One is there's no sleep elizer, fatigue-alizer. If we had one of those, it'd be so much easier to pick those people off the road, make sure they don't keep driving. Um, and that's why, and Dr. Sliser was talking about this, part of the reason these numbers are so underestimated, when you just look at somebody, you can't tell if they haven't had enough sleep. And so that's part of the problem. People are looking for biomarkers, other kinds of performance tests that might be able to tell us whether or not people have had enough sleep. But I think those are probably at least a few years away. Um, And that's going to be a problem for us to get a handle on how pervasive. We have enough data, and I think we're hearing it. 20 25% of all crashes could be fatigue-related, drowsy drivers. We could be looking at over a million crashes and potentially up to 8,000 lives lost. And even though the official statistics, even from my agency, aren't close to that, it's because of how hard this is to measure. But we can't let that measurement problem stop us for pursuing strategies that can save lives.
1: I noticed that in some of your materials, you say the public awareness is not gonna be enough, and you're doing some some focus groups and hope to put out some refined messaging uh, uh, messages to this uh, summer. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, what you're finding and what kind of messaging that needs to happen?
3: Yeah, I think uh, I can't give you the tagline yet, but you know, ours is the agency that does click it or ticket, drive sober, get pulled over. You drive, you text, you pay. So we do these large safe driving campaigns. And what we're going to do is elevate drowsy driving to that level. Um, Ariana's taking that to college campuses. She's taking it to the country. You can't have one and think you're going to change the culture. You have to have many. And so, and I, I'm with Ariana, frankly, which is, you know, we can't make this cozy and cuddly. You know, there is life. The lives are on the line here. And so, again, I can't tell you what the tagline is, but we're trying to figure out what is it that's going to grab people's attention for the for them to understand the seriousness that their lives or people around them could be at risk if they are driving when they haven't had sufficient sleep.
1: Well, d has the uh, drowsy has the, uh, the advantage of being alliterative, but do you think it trivializes the problem?
3: I'm sorry? Do you think
1: d- the word drowsy trivializes the problem and we should find some other way of describing
3: it? And I think that could be part of the problem. You know, in our society, language can be everything. How we describe this, I'll just tell you, my agency, crash is not an accident. When you use the word accident, it's like God made it happen. For us, 32,675 lives lost on our roads in 2014, all those crashes, all those lives lost, were 100% preventable. The language you use is important. Drowsy may not be the right one to go after this issue, alliteration or not.
1: Well, this leads naturally to our next panelist. Jay Winston, 28 years ago, (laughs) launched a groundbreaking project called the Harvard Alcohol Project. Um, you introduced the concept of designated driver into mainstream culture and persuaded TV and mo- movie producers to insinuate it into their scripts. So now you're tackling two other Ds, distracted and drowsy. Uh, what are the parallels between drunk driving and drowsy driving, and what are some of the challenging differences?
0: 28 years. Yes. Time flies when you have having fun. I remember fun. it well. <laughs> <laughs> and Richard, before I start, I just want to welcome you back to the Harvard. School of Public Health. Richard Knox was a journalism visiting fellow in, uh, at at the school, a goodly number of years ago, perhaps in that same realm of twenty eight years. Yeah. But welcome back. Invited a flash. Yeah. Um, so lessons from the designated driver campaign. You know what we set out to do with that campaign is to we asked ourselves how do we take a highly complex problem of alcohol use and abuse in American society, break it down into separate, manageable components, and then look for one component where there was a meaningful opportunity for change at the time, and to use that one component as a wedge to help to generate momentum on a broader variety of fronts in that that larger uh, domain. Um, When we started back in 1988 at the national level, There were only three television networks. Fox was only on two nights a week. There was no internet to think about, and no cable TV except for reruns. So if you had three friends, one at each major broadcast network, and I had three friends, you could hope to reach 75% of the American public on any given evening in prime time. Uh, Today, the situation is somewhat different, with not only a highly fragmented media marketplace, but an extremely short attention span on the part of the public. And we know that culture change and behavior change is a very long process, a multi-year or even decade process. And so we have to think about the issue of sleep deprivation and whatever we're going to call drowsy driving in a a phased sequence of steps to get to a solution. We're not going to jump to the solution uh, overnight. We need to, there's often with these issues a a long incubation period with a tremendous amount of activity behind the scenes on the part of activists and professionals and researchers, but very little public visibility. And then the issue can begin to rise into a early growth phase. And then sometimes triggered by a specific event, it will appear, seem to appear out of nowhere and jump into an exponential growth phase. Now what you can do with media, differs drastically depending upon what stage you're at in the life cycle of the issue. So we need to kind of diagnose that and get smart about it. So with regard to to sleep and drowsy driving, you know, what are the first stages in this process that that we want um, to tackle? Um, I happen to think that media can play a very important role in this but that there are other strategies and approaches that can play a much larger role than media, especially at this stage. And I think that the McKenzie Report, Ariana, could be crucial, could be key, because a lot of the change will come from within the corporate sector, and the culture change that can occur there. And at a later stage, in a more powerful way, it'll spread to the culture um, as a whole.
1: You know, with with alcohol, I think you started with a a, a sort of an advantage in terms of messaging, because, Everybody already knew that drinking and driving was probably not a good idea. It's right. just that we didn't, we didn't uh, stigmatize it earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you did. Um, with, with sleep, I, it seems like a more elusive problem to get to, to the first base. Uh, any thoughts about that?
0: Yeah, I think we need to start with kind of baby steps. Could people like one night per week kind of commit that on Sunday evenings to get a good start for the week uh, or first Sundays, the first Sunday of each month is going to be the night that you experiment with how you will feel come Monday morning if you've gotten a solid night's sleep. Uh, and I don't I, I have a slogan, Mark, I'm not sure it relates to the driving, but it does to the whole sleep issue and it's give it a rest.
4: Um. So I, I'm, I love Jay. He and I have worked together for many years on many campaigns and I think he's a genius in terms of understanding the language, but I have to profoundly disagree with him here, because I don't think we can afford baby steps. I think this is a a real um, international, life-threatening problem, um, we're discussing drowsy driving here, but it's affecting every aspect of our lives. I think Charles can give us the data on how it's affecting heart disease and diabetes and cancer, not to mention terrible decision-making in politics, in corporations, in media. So I'm sorry. We cannot afford baby steps. We cannot afford resting one night a week. We have to realize that we have been operating under this delusion, and we need to change the way we live. And we need to work at every level, you know, from what uh, Mark is doing. And we are so incredibly lucky to have someone heading Nita, whose work before he headed Nita involved sleep and understood sleep profoundly, and who also understands language. I think. All these things are kind of, I believe, are happening for a reason. We're tapping into a great moment in the zeitgeist. And we all need to use um, all our resources, imagination, uh, money, connections, everything, to create a critical mass and see a fundamental shift now, not 28 years from now.
1: Well, once again, you have gracefully moved us into uh, the next stage of our discussion, which is Uh, addressing the issues, policy. Uh, We're going to continue our driving metaphor. We're going to shift gears and talk about ways we can address drowsy and fatigue driving. One possible way that's getting a lot of attention lately is driverless cars, which means taking humans, fallible humans, out of the equation altogether. We're getting a taste of what that would look like right now. My new Subaru senses traffic flow and keeps me three car lengths behind the vehicle in front of me, except when somebody cuts in front of me, of course, and brakes when needed, just in case I don't. It also sounds an alarm if I stray outside my lane, uh, but it still requires me to stay awake. Uh, Here's a video clip, again from the Huffington Post site, that suggests where this technology may be going.
0: This car could be yours in a few years, but you won't be driving it. Google showed off their self-driving car technology to a group of reporters in California to show how far the technology had progressed.
3: The director of the project, Chris Irmswood, said the technology was almost ready. We've moved from driving on freeways to driving on surface streets
1: and we're now kind of at the point where we're confident that can happen. Uh, we really think that making vehicles that are fully self-driving, that will take you from your house to grandma's house without you ever having to drive is really the the big step forward and we're very excited about it.
0: Cars themselves are hard to mistake with their signature roof-mounted laser sensor that revolves ten times a second, gathering a 360-degree view of the car's surroundings. For the self-driving cars, however, consumer acceptance and regulation could prove to be as much of an issue as perfecting the technology. There's no firm date for when the cars will be available, but Google co-founder Sergey Brin said the technology could be out by 2017.
1: Of course, Google isn't the only company developing driverless cars. And clearly, there's a lot more work that needs to be done before driverless cars are on the market. Work on the technology itself, on whether to allow autonomous cars on the road, on how to regulate them, and on convincing the public that they're safe. There are sure to be bumps along this road. But how do you see all this developing, uh, panelists? And how much should we count on it to address the drowsy driving problem, do you think?
2: Well, I don't think we can wait for the driverless cars to begin addressing the problem. Uh, And for example, to address uh, the particular vulnerability of young people, uh, we managed to get past legislation in 2007 here in Massachusetts uh, that then-Governor Romney signed that, first of all, mandated drowsy driving education as part of all junior operator uh, driver training. Secondly, uh, it made it uh, illegal for junior operators, the 16 and 17-year-olds, to drive between 12.30 at night and 6 o'clock in the morning. And thirdly, it stiffened the penalties so that instead of just a $30 fine for driving in the middle of the night, uh, the junior operators uh, were, had their licenses suspended for anywhere from three to nine months, which for a teenager is a lifetime. Uh, and we found that after those changes were made to the graduating licensing law here in Massachusetts, uh, there was a 40% drop in fatal and incapacitating injuries among junior operators during a seven-year follow-up period. And so we just published a paper in which it's estimated that 320 uh, fatal incapacitating injuries and 11,000 crashes were prevented through this simple legislation, and I think that, that that's one step that can be taken uh, in all 50 states.
1: Before we leave driverless, though, let me just ask a question a different way. Uh, do you are you scared by driverless cars, or are you inspired by them?
4: No, I'm inspired by them, but. Um, Uh, As I'm on the board of Uber, and and Uber is also developing driverless cars, I'm kind of familiar with some of the problems of actually bringing them onto the market. And so I don't think it's going to be as imminent as we would like in terms of affecting um, drowsy driving deaths and and crashes. And in fact, the ride-sharing technologies like Uber, like Lyft, are making it clear that we now have alternatives. You know, it might have been hard for somebody to get a car or to get a taxi to go home if they were tired, but now it's incredibly easy, even in areas where uh, it would have been much harder to get a car. So I think we need to take advantage of the new technologies and uh, employers um, are uh, in, in greater and greater numbers offering um, these ride-sharing um, technologies, Uber, for example, to their employees. So if they're working late at night, uh, the employer pays for that. And more and more companies are participating in the program. And we have the data to show um, the difference. You know, um, Uber has partnered with MAD around uh, uh, drunk driving. And we see um, significant drops um in in drunk driving because of that and now uh, the Huffington Post has partnered with Uber uh, on the drowsy driving campaign and Toyota in fact um, offered free rides to students as part of our college uh, tour you know you could put a promo code on and if you're a student from 10 p.m to 2 a.m for the period of our sleep revolution college tour you would get a free ride all these things are um, ways to help change behavior beyond the time and the, um, of the promotion.
1: Well, uh, uh, the relationship between Uber drivers and the company is kind of, uh, uh, I don't know whether it's, it's the contractual relationship. They don't work for the company, right. and they have other jobs, typically. So I mean, how, how can Uber help ensure that the, when I call them uh, for a ride, or when I text them for a ride, that the driver is not going to be just coming off uh, an overnight shift?
4: Very hard. I think it's increasingly hard in the geek economy when um, um,
1: That's people That's G-I-G, <laughs> not like
4: know it's, <laughs> my, it's my Greek accent. <laughs> <laughs> it's geek as Greek, right? Um, to, to have control over how tired the driver is going to be. Over 50% of, <clears throat> of Uber drivers uh, drive for Uber less than 10 hours a week. So that's why changing the overall culture about the importance of sleep right. is something which is uh, essential because people are more and more in control of their own lives. And while corporations have to change in terms of what they reward and the language they use and the expectation not to be always on, Ultimately, we need to set our own boundaries. And, and, but we don't I'm sorry..
2: No, go ahead. But we don't effectively set our boundaries. Yes. For example, academic medical centers, 85,000 resident physicians currently are still allowed to work 28-hour shifts twice a week, and are not provided transportation home. And then they go off. After they, the car, they a work car, right? those 28-hour <laughs> shifts uh, Yeah. So, yeah, unfortunately, that and we showed that when they drive home from those shifts, they have 170% increased risk of a motor vehicle crash. And yet, that finding, which we published a decade ago, has not led to substantial change. In fact, they're, they're just talking about moving back uh, to 30-hour shifts again for all the residents, so there would be 120,000 instead of 85,000. Well, that doesn't bode
1: very well for change, does it, if you can't persuade people in You know, policymakers, uh, medical educators who ought to be concerned about health and safety.
2: In in fact, the IRBs approved a study putting them back on 30 hour shifts without full review because they said there was no human risk.
0: Mm. On the uh, drowsy driving part of this, you know, we don't have to wait for driverless cars. There are technologies being developed today that are partial solutions, including a technology that will can that can monitor and detect your degree of drowsiness. and can sound an alarm to uh, the extent to which those are um, are fully developed and widely disseminated in, in vehicles uh, could make a big difference. But it will also kind of convince people that they no longer need to worry about drowsy driving or about the role of fatigue in their lives. So it could backfire. But I just want to very, very quickly get back to the exchange that Ariana and, and I had, because in a sense, I've been thinking about it, you're playing the role in that exchange of a Bernie Sanders, <laughs> and I'm playing the role of Hillary. And I'm saying, let's get practical, and let's really talk concretely, nuts and bolts. What can we achieve um, given the current climate, etc And in a sense, we're in agreement because really what I'm saying is I think we need to think it through systematically in in terms of a series of stages over a period of time. Um, I think what we can attempt to do as a society with interventions is large scale, but I do believe that in terms of individual behavior change, the changes will be incremental and not macro. People have to slowly but surely, the QE2 doesn't change direction suddenly. Um, if the Except Titanic it, had it, were yes. it able to do that, it would have done much better. Except as
4: Charles would uh, would say, uh, this is not sudden. I mean, look at the, a lot of the studies that Charles right. has brought up are decade-old studies. This is not new. I think what is new is um, the growing awareness yes. about the dangers of sleep deprivation, and also the fact that we now have some amazing new uh, pioneers, like athletes. I think it's incredibly significant that athletes who are so admired um, around the world are now using sleep as a performance enhancement tool. And I have examples in the book of people like Andre Nguidola from the Golden State Warriors and Kobe Bryant who improved their sleep, tracked their stats, and they actually now have become the biggest champions yeah.
2: and Tom Brady goes every Tom night at 30 in the yes. evening
4: so i think uh,
2: because he has to be uh, there at the practice field by 5:30 so this
4: directly contradicts you know the cultural assumption that if we are really go-getters and winners you know we are not going to yeah. To, to sleep for eight hours because I'll sleep when I'm dead, as the John Bon Jovi song put it. And
1: you'll get there sooner. You'll get there sooner. If, uh, yes. It if occurs to me sleep. maybe we needed Donald Trump to make America safe again, but, maybe, <laughs> but, but that's the another interest, forum perhaps. Interesting,
0: no, the interesting <laughs> thing about Donald Trump is he likes to boast that he only gets two hours sleep a night. and. Charles, I wonder whether, if he got more sleep, would he have better impulse control in terms of what he says? And could we make some news right I now I think on I'll S-Corp. change the subject on that You don't want me to answer?
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: please. please. Later. Dr.
1: Rothkind, uh, you, you mentioned earlier uh, that um, you, your agency, at Justice Spring, put out a uh, first ever plan and, and some guidelines, a, a road map, as it were, <clears throat> to uh, tackle this problem. I think uh, we need to know a little bit more about the, the practical steps that you think are possible that's in that plan that is going to move things forward.
3: Well, and I think that fits with what you've already been talking about. Of those 32,675 lives lost, 94% are due to a human error or human choice that gets made. That's why technology is so exciting. Those number of losses... It's like having a 747 crash every single week. We would never allow our aviation system to persist past one week, and yet we see that kind of carnage on our roadways. So technology offers great opportunity, but I think what you're hearing from folks there, and they're actually all agreeing, is we're in a crisis mode now. And we basically have to look for solutions now. And part of that is because, and it was said, um, if you had the perfect self-driving car tomorrow, never worried about drowsy, drunk, distracted, drugged, It takes 20 to 30 years for new technology to fully penetrate our vehicle fleet. So you can't have this tomorrow. And so everybody's been saying it is, in fact, both. We have a crisis. We have to go at this now. But we have to think about the long term and the cultural change to make sure that we don't get stuck just doing these acute, focused on the now, and never getting the great change. So to your question specifically, we are looking at education, strategies, policy, and research. And every one of those areas is looking at both near-term, what can be done now, small steps, but also what's the long-term cultural change that will need to happen. There is no magic bullet. You can't have one forum for an hour or write a book and say we're done. This is why I keep saying we have to do so much more and continue doing what we're seeing here today because we've got to do things that matter tonight as well as the things that will matter to our kids. So our program at NHTSA is basically focused on the near-term in those areas, uh, education, research, strategies, and policy, but also identify what the long-term opportunities are to really see the culture change we need.
1: Well, specifically, and for for example, do we need rumble strips uh, dividing every lane on the highways? Would that be a good thing? Can, apart from driverless cars, can we, or should we, require uh, all cars to have uh, the technology that my Subaru does and many other cars, uh which tells which uh, warns me when I'm drifting out of the lane. I mean those are sort of uh doable things that strikes me, but are those on your agenda?
3: Absolutely. In fact you've just gone to so the differentiation of near-term versus long term. So Rumble streets, rumble strips you can actually there's great data that shows you can literally decrease drowsy driving accidents and fatalities by fifty percent. Many highways now have a requirement that if you're gonna build a new highway, you gotta include the Rumble strips. In March, NHTSA announced we have an agreement, 20 manufacturers, 99% of all new vehicles manufactured by 2022 will have automatic automatic emergency braking standard on the vehicle. That beat our regulatory push by about three years probably, but it means your vehicle, not just keep you in the lane, but basically it's gonna warn you and stop for you automatically by 2022. Toyota came out and said they'd beat it, and they'll have everything in their car by 2017, for example. So those are near-term technological solutions to address this now. We can't keep our eye off the ball, which is the long-term cultural change, so that we don't kind of fall back the way Dr. Slicer was talking about actually regressing and falling back from the progress we've made. So we've seen pockets of progress but it's not been the global societal change that will keep us there. And that's why I say, I think it's both. We've got to do the near-term, the stuff that affects how we sleep tonight, but look long-term if we expect to see the cultural change that's going to really matter.
1: Thank you. Uh, now I think it's now time to entertain some questions. Uh, and I assume there are some out there. First of all, I think it would be nice to, uh, to see what the people online uh, want to know about from this panel.
2: Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Richard. Um, We've had several questions coming in about the risk of drowsy driving if you're working longer hours. We've had a number of those. Um, So I'd just like to take one. This is from Frank Komen, who I believe is writing in from France, and it kind of covers it all. What is the effect of more hours of work on drowsy driving and being asleep at the wheel? And I'll just add part of another question from someone else. What is your advice for people who have to work irregular shifts in drive. So one of the things, (coughs) both both extended hours per week. So when you get up to 80 hours per week instead of 40 hours per week of work, your risk of a crash doubles. Another way that work increases crash risk is when the number of consecutive hours uh, exceeds 12. And, or eight hours at night. And so when, when you work, for example, 24-hour shifts, uh, there is 170% increased risk of crashes. So, and, and those crashes are particularly on the drive home from the extended duration shift. So either long shifts or many work hours during the week. And the many work hours during the week it causes cumulative sleep deprivation because if you're working sixteen hours a day and then you have only eight hours off in between shifts by the time you drive home and get back, there's not an adequate time uh, for sleep so that's how work hours interacts with the risk of crashes but many
1: people don't have the choice I mean they have to they do have shifting work shifts uh, at NPR, for instance, it happens so what do you what how can you?
2: Well, a, a, that? a night shift worker, if they if they're going to work the night shift, the best strategy that they can do is to get enough sleep on particularly the afternoon before the shift. So reducing the number of hours that they're awake before they start overnight work is a key strategy that uh, actual night shift workers can use to, tank up on sleep, and reduce the risk of sleep derived crashes.
1: By the the way, NPR has a strong union that mandates that, but not everybody does. Um, Is is there a question from our attentive uh, studio audience?
0: Uh, My name is Richard Cash. I'm a faculty here at the School of Public Health. What is your view on the message and the use of high-energy drinks that are supposed to uh, uh, relieve your uh, drowsiness? And is there, is there a message that can be directed to, to the users of these products?
2: You're talking about Beyond Coffee. Red Bull, you name them. There are lots and lots of them out there. Yes, and the, the five-hour energy drinks. All, all of these, caffeine is the main ingredient. Uh, and caffeine uh, will reduce the risk of um, of lapses of attention. but. Um, The problem is that that pushes people to be even more sleep deprived and also interferes with the restorative value of sleep once they do get to sleep because uh, caffeine has a six to nine hour half-life. So when the National Transportation Safety Board, which uh, Dr. Roskind was a member of, when they did a study of fatal to the driver truck crashes, they found that the blood levels of caffeine were much higher in the fatigue-related crashes than in the non-fatigue-related crashes, presumably because the drivers in the fatigue-related crashes knew that they were exhausted and were drinking uh, caffeine to try to stay awake. But it just proves, as Arianna Huffington said earlier, that you can't paper over this problem with caffeine.
4: No, but also the problem with energy drinks, and I have a whole section in the book about them because I think they are so dangerous. Emergency room um, ad- ad- admissions because of energy drink use has doubled in recent years. And unfortunately it's not just caffeine. It's the combination of caffeine and sugar and all the other chemicals in that that gives that extra boost uh, that is so problematic and it's part of the culture. And I think the fact that these things are advertised, the fact that there's so little um, attention to the the dangerous side effects, the same with sleeping pills, the fact that we and New Zealand are the only countries that advertised sleeping pills, and you have these advertisements of people in you know, beautiful fields and uh, <laughs> cavorting around while a cheery voice is reading 92 adverse medical effects, which include maybe getting in the car and driving without any realization you are doing that. That is truly absurd. And uh, we, that's all part of the education process about what we are doing to ourselves.
3: Dr. Seisler and I were fortunate to have Dr. William DeMent as a teacher and mentor of ours, the guy who helped discover REM sleep, coined the term. One of his favorite things now that he likes to say is drowsiness is red alert. And it goes to the point here, which is by the time you're feeling drowsy, it's too late. We need to change just like we've done in all of healthcare to the acute intervention, which is taking the sleeping pill or taking the bowl or any other energy drink, etc., to thinking prevention. And so our focus should be on getting sufficient sleep, getting the sleep apnea taken care of, managing your shift work. By the time you're worried about falling asleep at the wheel, it's too late. Uh, I've done this in simulators with pilots when I was at NASA. People say, so what should I do here? Well, you want to give them a strategy, but what you really want to say is you should have had a good night's sleep last night. And so we really got to shift the discussion to strategies that are going to be preventive and the only time you go to that cute operational strategy is in a life-saving situation where you got to do something. But this discussion really needs to start with drowsiness is red alert, and you don't ever want to be in that situation. Start doing the prevention before that with sufficient sleep, getting your sleep disorder diagnosis, manage your work schedule, and everything else you can do before ever putting yourself in that situation.
1: I have a follow-on question from from that, from strategy, and also from Professor Cash's question about uh, energy drinks. I'm just—it's sort of like uh, it's like nutrition. We all know what we need to do in order to eat uh, better and be healthier because of it, but um, that's that's a, a hard thing to change, and it's a longer-term thing for many people. However, and I'm wondering about what strategies we already might suggest, or you might, your agency might suggest of uh, for people who have to get from here to there today and they and they're getting drowsy I mean is there something you can do to uh, minimize your risk of falling asleep at the wheel
3: well I would say right in line with what we're talking about prevention is where you start policies that don't let you work too long that make sure you maintain an appropriate sleep schedule and sleep amount um, you get this all the time at the NTSB they're they're off to an investigation somewhere. They fly all the time. Do you really want them in a car driving four hours to a site? No. You have to the length of the days, make sure people have appropriate sleep. So all the strategies, they're in Ariana's book. Dr. was written about this. There are all kinds of good sleep strategies that people need to use. Manage the environment beforehand. Get educated about it. Do everything you can. Those are kind of the standard strategies everybody should use. And then... There are circumstances in life where you're in a situation. Yes, then maybe caffeine used strategically, or potentially a sleeping pill or a nap. And by the way, I put the nap first because it's natural. These are tools that could be available. The problem now is we over rely on them so much because we're so sleep deprived. If you were doing the prevention, then these tools would be tactical strategies only used in life-saving kinds of situations. Instead now, they're kind of how we live our life.
1: Does it work, or do we know if it works, to pull over to a rest area and take a a 10 minute or 15 minute snooze?
3: And I didn't ask you to uh, give me that question, but when I was at NASA, probably probably the study that I'm most known for was a project we did giving pilots naps in the cockpit. And why did NASA do that? Well, that's because there were studies showing one to three pilots were falling asleep in uncontrolled ways. And so instead, could we give them a nap? We gave them a 40-minute nap. They slept on average 26 minutes. That boosted performance, all this objectively measured. A 26-minute nap boosted performance by 34%, and alertness, literally measuring their brain, by 54%. A nap is one of the most powerful strategies you can have to boost your performance and alertness. Yes, absolutely work. If you use caffeine correctly, not all the time, strategically, you can get over a 30% boost. But things, again, as natural as a nap seems so simple. And this is part of the cultural issue. Oh, did you want uh, your little bear and milk with that too? Um, no, it's one of the most effective ways to help boost people's performance. And, so there are strategies and they've been proven.
2: And Dr. Roskind can't say this since he's in the, in the Department of Transportation, but the Department of Transportation still will not allow uh, more than 20 years after that study uh, pilots to nap in the cockpit in the United States. Many other companies, uh, many other countries, have taken the results of Dr. Roskind's study and implemented them by scheduling naps in the cockpit. But no president has wanted on their shift to authorize. <coughs> Uh, American pilots to sleep in the cockpit. So we don't have <laughs> so we don't have this very eff- and it's a cultural uh, issue. Uh, so we don't have this very effective strategy. And it's
4: actually part of why we need to change the culture. Uh, a similar thing happened to me. I was speaking um, at our US. embassy in London and to the staff, and um, the ambassador was there. And at the end of um, my speech, I was, uh, because I mentioned how the Huffington Post have nap rooms, and we encourage our employees to take a nap if they are tired in the afternoon. So um, a member of the embassy staff stood up and said, well, Mr. Ambassador, can we also have a nap room in the embassy? And the ambassador said, that sounds like a great idea. And the next day, there was a whole article in the Washington Post from the State Department saying, State Department employees do not, do not nap on the job. Oh. And it's, again, uh, part of the whole delusion yeah. that napping on the job right. means you're not as good, and that instead, you know, taking an energy drink or a fifth cup of coffee is a, is a more intelligent and more productive way to proceed.
3: We are you know, fit- I'll just add that what you're describing is those people are already sleeping on the job. Yes. <laughs> they're going to their car, they're going in the restroom, they're already doing covert napping because that's the covert. only way they're surviving. <laughs> and it's just like with, with the pop, do you want spontaneous uncontrolled fallen asleep in potentially dangerous or work situations? Give somebody a 26 minute opportunity and boost performance by 34%. I still challenge anybody, to give me anything that lasts a half hour or less that's natural that gives you that kind of human performance boost. I don't think it exists, at least if it's legal, it doesn't exist.
1: It's too bad it can't be marketed. <laughs> it, we're 57 minutes and uh, 32 seconds or something like that into our this fascinating discussion. Uh, so I'm afraid we don't have any more time for questions, but I would like to turn to our panelists and, and ask you all to, to put forward a, sim- a single policy recommendation that you'd like uh, the, poli- the audience, and particularly those in the position to influence policy, to take away from this discussion. Arianna?
4: So, I would love um, to make universal something that happens in some states that is mandatory language on driver's tests. I know there is some language, but how do we make it very central to a driver's test? All the information about the dangers of drowsy driving. Uh, make it a pillar of education. Make it a pillar of re-education. Any time somebody has to go to school again to be able to maintain their driver's license. I think that's going to be key because throughout this whole fascinating discussion, um, we are seeing that at the heart of our problem is this collective delusion uh, that sleep deprivation is for champs, You know, for the people who are winners who are making a difference in the world. And until we change that, it's going to be much harder to actually reduce um, the deaths uh, and the tragic accidents and the crashes from drowsy driving.
1: That's a good specific one. Licensing is where the rubber meets the road. So <laughs> um, Chuck.
4: Well, I'd like to see that the Department of Transportation actually
2: has an open request for comments on a proposal that they have now to require. A screening of all uh, truck drivers and train drivers, and I think it should be expanded to pilots who are piloting airplanes and ships, and and uh, and all modes of transportation. Then Anybody? CEOs, CEOs, mandatory
4: candidates. There
2: you go. Uh, and since we know that obesity is the biggest risk factor for sleep apnea, mm-hmm. anyone who is overweight or obese and wants a commercial license to drive any one of these uh, vehicles carrying other passengers mm-hmm. should be required to have uh, mandatory mm-hmm. testing for sleep apnea. Uh, and if found positive, they should be required to have treatment uh, that is monitored for compliance.
1: Sort of like people who are blind should have glasses so. <laughs> Exactly there before they drive. Jay.
2: Yeah, I'd start <coughs> with
0: workplace policies and especially at major corporations because you're dealing with hierarchical institutions where if you get win the support at the top, you can change the culture within, uh, within that uh, institution. And I'd be smart and strategic about which co- companies I went after initially. So for example, I, I go quickly to Hollywood Studios and TV networks because you can generate news around their involvement in it. And you use, use their decisions and their culture change to generate an ongoing series of high-profile news stories to continually shift attention back to the issue and to slowly but surely shift social norms.
1: It worked before, so maybe it'll work again. I know Dr. Roskine is is cruel for me to ask you to to suggest a single recommendation, but that's what you have time for. And
3: I think it's for everyone, actually. Sleep like your life depends on it, and always drive alert.
1: Well, that's a good tagline. Um, We encourage anyone and everyone who's joined us today to continue this discussion on the forum's website, theforumhsph.org. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us. I hope you've learned as much as I have and been motivated to keep learning about this topic. And thanks especially to our excellent panelists. It was a lovely, lively discussion. The forum will next tackle organ transplantation, the medical technology, and ethical challenges on Friday, May 20th at 1230 PM Eastern Time. So put it on your calendars.
0: This has been a production of the forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.